Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. In this episode, uh, we're going to uh, feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the continuing war in Ukraine. And, of course, this is impacting uh, inflation, is impacting uh, the availability of food, the uh, transactions, uh, financial transactions on an international level. And we'll have details on that. The border conflict between Ethiopia and Sudan has not been fully resolved. Uh, There's reports of uh, soldiers killed and also of shelling uh, of uh, Ethiopian territory. The Democratic Sudanese Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC, says it wants to build a broad-based coalition to overthrow the military regime now ruling the country. And the West African state of Sierra Leone has been hit by a wave of inflation, causing a precipitous decline in its national currency. In the second hour, we pay tribute to Congolese Pan-Africanist pioneer Patrice Lumumba, uh, just one day after his 97th birthday. And, of course, uh, Lumumba was brutally assassinated uh, by imperialist forces in 1961. His remains have just been returned to the African continent by the Belgians to coincide with the leader's 97th birthday. In the final hour, we reflect on the 40th anniversary of the conviction of African-American journalist and organizer Mumia Abu-Jamal, who spent many years on death row. He is now off death row, uh, but still remains incarcerated by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, Today was an international day of action demanding the freedom of Mumia Abu-Jamal. There were demonstrations uh, in at least uh, 40 cities across the United States and the world. And, of course, there was one in downtown Detroit where we are broadcasting from, and we'll have details on that later on in our program. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll take a musical interlude with the Mundengue Bruce from the album entitled Rock of Congo. Let's listen in. Mama, I'm not going to leave a canawa. 
traditional uh, African Congolese music and, of course, uh, allowing musicians, artists to produce, uh, to innovate, and, of course, um, utilizing uh, modern recording equipment and uh, studio equipment, a masterpiece, to say the least. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on this Sunday, uh, July 3rd, uh, 2022. Uh, my name is Abayomi Azikwe, and uh, we're here every week uh, bringing you uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, right now, we'd like to move into our Pan African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And our lead story uh, deals with the ongoing uh, military situation in Eastern Europe uh, involving the Russian special military operation in Ukraine. Uh, According to the uh, TASS news agency, the West is currently uh, betting on a continuing war in Ukraine. Uh, Washington does not allow Kiev to think or talk about peace. That's according to Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov. He said that earlier today. Now is the moment uh, when Western countries are betting on the continuation of the war. This means that the moment continues when Western countries under the leadership of Washington do not allow uh, Ukrainians to think or talk about peace. Uh, Peskov said this in an interview uh, with the Rosia One uh, television channel. At the same time, he is convinced that no sooner or later, uh, common sense in the West will prevail and negotiations on Ukraine uh, will resume. Uh, Now the demand for initiatives to pacify the situation has declined, uh, but we have no doubt that sooner or later, common sense will prevail and once again, the turn of negotiations will come, uh, Peskov added. He also noted that before the negotiation process resumes, Ukraine will have to once again understand Moscow's conditions, agree to them, sit down at the table, and just formalize the document that has already been agreed in many respects. Uh, Peskov concluded, uh, European leaders most often lack the strength to be guided only by the interests of their countries. They have to follow the collective West, a Russian presidential spokesman also said. European leaders... They still have their own countries with their own interests, and they actually can have varying, varying points of view. Uh, we see this very well, Peskov said, commenting on the differences between the countries in the group of 20. And uh, also related to the situation uh, in Ukraine, Ukraine's armed forces attempted to attack military facilities in Belarus uh, several days ago, uh, but the missiles were intercepted. That's according to Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said that on yesterday. We are being provoked. I have to tell you that three days ago, or maybe a bit earlier, there was an attempt to hit military facilities on Belarusian territory from Ukraine. Thank God the Pashir air defense systems were capable of intercepting all the missiles fired by Ukraine's armed forces. He said at a gala meeting on the eve of the Belarus Independence Day, uh, cited by the Belta News Agency. The president recalled that dozens, several dozens of Belarusian truck drivers have been apprehended in Ukraine. Two drivers were killed. And then they said that it was Russians bombing. 
and that they were killed. Uh, they cut the dead people's organs out of their corpses so they would not be seen that they had been shot dead. But my guys did figure that out. Is it nationalism? Is it Nazism? Is it fascism? Lukashenko stressed. The president pointed out that innocent people were being killed in hostilities in Ukraine. Many have been maimed. We do not need this war at all, he pointed out. And uh, in the Horn of Africa, the militarized uh, government of Sudan and Egypt and their Ethiopian-based treasonous and terrorist lackeys, most notably the Tigray People's Liberation Front in the north, and the Oromo Liberation Army in the south and west are operating in concert to dismantle Ethiopia and derail Ethiopia's mammoth and transformative projects, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project, the GERD. Tragically for Ethiopia and its 120 million people, Ethiopia's internal ethnic polarization, civil war in the north, recurring ethnic genocide targeting Amhara in the south and west, suffocation of fundamental human rights and freedoms, theft, bribery, corruption, maladministration of justice, skyrocketing prices, the inability of Ethiopia's political elites to settle differences through negotiations and give and take, and more critical, their inability to address the root causes, institutional and structural, of Ethiopia's instability and unpredictable future contribute to, to the external threats. Misplaced Ethiopian government priorities compound the country's multifaceted problems. Sudan and Egypt are taking advantage of Ethiopia's internal political and governance turmoil. Their primary intent is to stop the third bill of the GERD of this Ethiopian winter. The purpose of this commentary is to alert the international community as well as Ethiopians in the diaspora that behind Sudan's unprovoked aggression and annexation of Ethiopian lands is the government of Egypt. It is no longer a secret. The Sudanese military led by General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan is conducting aggression and proxy wars against Ethiopia at the behest of Egypt's militarized and warmongering government led by General al-Sisi. Both leaders support the PPLF and the OLA. The concert wishes to destabilize and balkanize uh, Ethiopia. And that uh, is an article that was uh, published in Borkina, uh, an Ethiopian uh, news website. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In regard to the situation uh, in uh, Ethiopia as well, Sudan shelled areas along the Ethiopian border where there was an incident involving its defense force and the Ethiopia militia. The BBC Amharic service uh, just this last past Wednesday cited Dessaline Ayana, who is head of the West Armashiho district administration to report that Sudan has been shelling the area with artillery, mortar, and other heavy weaponry. Residents in the area said the shelling was strong uh, as, as of Monday, and it continued to Tuesday in the afternoon. No casualties are reported in connection with the heavy weaponry attack from Sudan. Sudan started the military move this week on alleged grounds that seven of its soldiers who were captured by the Ethiopian Defense Force were executed. It further claimed that the execution happened within the Sudanese border. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi on Tuesday expressed condolences to uh, Major General Al-Bahan, Sudanese military leader and president of uh, the military regime, over the loss of the death of the Sudanese soldiers. 
Ethiopian government on Tuesday said no Ethiopian army was deployed to the area where the incident occurred. According to the Ethiopian Defense Force, the fighting was between the local militia in Armachiho and the Sudanese forces. Desalane Ayana said Sudanese forces made advances from the Ethiopian territories they forcefully occupied and they met resistance from the local militia. And uh, finally, uh, the situation uh, inside of uh, Sierra Leone uh, has, of course, been impacted uh, by the inflationary spiral uh, that we see taking place in the leading capitalist countries with the United States in the lead. Uh, Sierra Leone, just on Friday, introduced new family, a new family of banknotes, stripping the three zeros off the Leone in a bid to restore confidence in the inflation-hit national currency. The Bank of Sierra Leone announced the move last August, insisting the public's purchasing power would not be affected by the change. We have removed three zeros from our banknotes, but the money yesterday is the same value as today. President Julius Madabio said at ceremonies at the central bank where the new bills were unveiled. A note of 10 new Leones is the equivalent of a note of 10,000 old Leones which changes hands for about 75 U.S. cents. Year-on-year inflation in the West African state was 24.87% just in May, according to the National Statistics Agency of Sierra Leone. Rising prices have driven the printing of banknotes, resulting in a mountain of paper money that is costly to sustain and unwieldy for the public. Shoppers that need huge quantities of banknotes for the simplest transactions and unscrupulous bank tellers sometimes prefer notes from sealed bundles of bills. We are removing the zeros of shame to get the currency properly aligned. Uh, Morlai Bangura, the central bank director, uh, told this to the Asian France Press uh, earlier in the week. He said the bank uh, had uh, begun distributing a new paper note uh, to commercial banks last week. On Friday, customers braving the rain queried at commercial banks to swap their old banknotes for new ones. The changing of our currency is necessary. We will use to carry bags to the bank to withdraw our money, but not anymore. Alice Fraser, 70, said after exchanging her notes to the Sierra Leone Commercial Bank, a state-owned bank in central Freetown. New banknotes have a similar design to the old ones, but a smaller in size. Our current currency is too big to fit into a wallet, and we spend too much money printing oversized banknotes. Hilfala Rana Cologne, the central bank governor, told reporters last August as he announced the move. The central bank declined to comment on the cost of the operation. Sierra Leone's 8 million people live in one of the poorest nations in the world, ranking 182 out of 189 countries in the United Nations Human Development Index. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, uh, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. And since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. 
the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a musical break, and we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Sunday, July 2nd, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, that was uh, Detroit's own Motown Sound, the Four Tops, with the song entitled You Keep Running Away. And uh, right now, uh, we're going to play once again, uh, rebroadcast a uh, program that we uh, aired in May. Uh, for African Liberation Day, uh, dealing uh, with the assassination of Congolese uh, Pan-Africanist leader Patrice Lumumba, uh, the founder of uh, modern Congo. Uh, Lumumba's uh, remains were returned uh, by the Belgium to the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, just several days ago. And, of course, he was given an uh, honorable burial. Uh, yet uh, the Belgian uh, government and also monarchy uh, today is attempting to, in a sense, uh, reconcile uh, with the vicious, deadly, and genocidal colonial history of uh, Belgium inside of the Democratic Republic of Congo going back uh, in regard to Belgium at least until 1876. And, of course, um, the impact of the Atlantic slave trade on that region of the African continent lasted for centuries uh, through the Portuguese, uh, the French. Therefore, uh, today we're going to uh, broadcast uh, a documentary on the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, looking at the role of the United States, the role of Belgium, the role of the United Nations. And, of course, uh, yesterday, uh, July 2nd, uh, represented the 97th birthday of uh, Patrice Lumumba, who was born on July 2nd of 1925 in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Let's listen to this uh, documentary on uh, Patrice Lumumba. Even personality. Here I have what's left of a very important historical figure. He had very good teeth. They're covered in gold at the back. How and why was Patrice Lumumba murdered 40 years ago? One man who must know is the Belgian colonial official and diplomat, Jacques Brassine. He was dangerous for us in the sense that he wasn't open to the kind of solutions we sometimes wanted to apply. Another man who played a central role in the fall of the Congolese politician was Louis Malière, a colonel in the Belgian Secret Service. Lumumba chose the wrong side. Of course, he was more or less a communist, and he chose the Russian side rather than the West. Virginia, USA. This is where CIA agent Larry Devlin lives. He was the man the American government entrusted with the murder of Lumumba. Lumumba was a danger for both the Congo and the rest of the world. Lumumba's house in Kinshasa, or Leopoldville as it was known then, 
1960, when the Congo became independent, it was for a few months at the center stage of world politics. Patrice Lumumba, the country's first prime minister. The masses who are waiting for us tomorrow want more than just the votes they have obtained today. They want bread and progress. We need to be able to build this nation. There were headlines throughout the entire summer. 200 days later, the show was over. Roland, Lumumba's youngest son, was not even three years old when he saw his father for the last time. We must know exactly who did it, how and why. We have the right to know. It's our duty to pass this knowledge on to the future generations, to our children and the children of our children. Lumumba's typewriter, a souvenir from the only friend he had in Belgium, Jean Van Lied, a rebellious Christian and anti-colonialist. He tried in vain to act as an intermediary between Lumumba and the Belgian government. Patrice was such a free man and people found it so original to see a black man who didn't lick the feet of the colonialists that they instinctively perceived him as a threat. And it was that freedom of his which turned him into a kind of meteorite flashing through the sky and then he disappeared. The first Europeans to arrive in the Congo called it the Heart of Darkness. In 1955, when King Baudouin visited the country, the colonial order still seemed secure. But millions of Congolese had paid with their lives during the 80 years of Belgian rule. The chance appearance of Patrice Lumumba in the background of an old newsreel. Within five years, this unknown post office worker had become the leader of an unstoppable independence movement. The objective we are pursuing is the liberation of the Congo from the colonial regime and the total emancipation of the country. We are certain that we know exactly where we are going. The independence of the Congo doesn't mean driving the Belgians out or breaking with Belgium. Quite the opposite. We want to form a sovereign government which will provide a place for everyone in a country where Congolese and Belgians will be able to work hand in hand in the service of the Congolese nation. Lumumba, the Pan-African with his MNC party, won a surprise victory in the first free elections. The Belgians reluctantly handed over the government to him. His closest rival, Kasavubu, became president of the young independent states. We are honored to present to the parliament of the Congo the first Congolese government as follows. Prime Minister and Minister of Defense, your humble servant, Lumumba. The first clash came at the independence celebrations. Gentlemen, the independence of the Congo is the crowning moment of the mission conceived by the genius of King Leopold II. 
undertaken by him with courageous tenacity and pursued with great perseverance by Belgium. King Baudouin made a speech in which he exalted the role of Belgium talking about everything Belgium had brought to the Congo. He said we had arrived at a moment when Belgium had decided to grant the Congo its independence and that this was well and good. I would say it was a classic speech for such circumstances. Kazavubu made a speech thanking King Baudouin. He talked about the Congo and the future. It was a good speech too. Lumumba hadn't been scheduled to speak. The whole international press was there. Suddenly he got up, walked to the tribune, and made a speech. Lumumba's speech came as a shock. Nobody was expecting it, and it shocked lots of Belgians. He systematically condemned Belgian colonization. He repeated all the harshest anti-colonial accusations. We'd cut off people's hands, we'd enslaved them, and all that sort of thing. You who have fought for independence and are today victorious, I salute you in the name of the Congolese government. I salute all my friends who fought relentlessly at our sides. We have been subjected to insults and sarcasms, to the blows we had to endure from morning to night just because we were Africans. We learned that the law was never the same according to whether it was applied to whites or blacks. Who will ever forget the shootings or the barbarous jail cells awaiting those who refuse to submit to this regime of injustice, oppression and exploitation? That was really the decisive moment when he made that famous speech on the 30th of June 1960. A lot of people then said he signed his death warrant with that speech because the Belgian government didn't want him. Not just because of the 30th of June speech, but because he was Patrice Lumumba and he didn't fit in with the hopes of the Belgians and Americans and many people in business. Only five days after the founding of the new state, a revolt broke out in the army. The black troops rebelled against their Belgian officers who had no intention of abandoning their command. Crisis in the Congo took over the headlines in the world's press. The Italian consul in Leopoldville was murdered in this car. Terror and destruction are now the features of a freedom which many believe to be premature. Whites are fleeing mobs who have been whipped up to anger. The Belgian government is sending paratroops into the Congo. In the copper-rich province of Katanga, Lumumba's opponent, Chombi, called on the Belgians for help too, in order to disarm the troops. Less than ten days after their withdrawal, 
colonial soldiers triumphantly returned to the former colony. René Small went to Katanga as an officer in the military secret service. If it hadn't been for the courage of that small number of Belgian officers and NCOs in containing the blacks and preventing them from overrunning the town, then it would have been horrible. The Elizabethville mutiny was over in 24 hours thanks to the Belgians. The rebellion started on July 9th and lasted till the 10th. It was on the 11th at 5 p.m. that we declared independence. This was the Katangan secession. Chombi, known locally as Mr. Cash Register, declared himself president of the separatist province. But he was a president installed by the Belgians. Elizabethville was above all a center for important financial interests. That was where the Union Minière, the mining company was. Obviously, Belgian financial circles also wanted to keep their hands on that. One of the major figures in the breakaway state was the Minister of Finance, Jean-Baptiste Kibwe. As soon as we took over, the mining company, L'Union Minière, continued to export copper and the revenue from this went into the Katanga National Bank. Chombi's chief aide was a Belgian lawyer, Jacques Bartelus. The mining company now paid its taxes and license fees to the Katangan government, not to Leopoldville. So the Katangans had plenty of money, and this enabled them to equip the Katangan gendarmes and by weapons and armored vehicles. There were arms merchants continually visiting Chombi's home to try and sell him arms. Chombi's white mercenaries defending the free world in the heart of Africa soon became known as les affreurs, literally the dreadful men. There was anger and disappointment at the breakaway in the Congolese capital, Leopoldville. The flag over the Belgian embassy was hauled down and the ambassador of the former colonial power sent home. The plot was already and the plans prepared. They intend to impose a government against the wishes of the people. Belgium wants to balkanize this country, to break up the Congo. Lumumba asked that American troops come in to replace the Belgians and throw the Belgians out. Uh, they talked to Ambassador Timberlake, who realized that if American troops came in, almost certainly then Russian troops would come in. So Timberlake then recommended that instead of asking the United States that they ask the United Nations to send uh, troops to, to uh, resolve the situation. At the request of the Congolese government, the UN has decided to replace Belgian troops with United Nations forces. In this way, the US representative Cabot Lodge has opposed Soviet attempts to make propaganda capital out of the Congo crisis. This was a con trick on a big scale. 
American planes were hastily resprayed and flew the blue helmets into the Congo. Lumumba and his government had called for UN troops in order to end the Katanga secession. But when they arrived, they took no action against Chombi and the separatists. The Indian general, Rikia, went to the Congo as military advisor to UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. Unfortunately, Mr. Lumumba and uh, Mr. Kasuhubu, or for that matter, any other Congolese leader, which uh, belonged to one side or the other, their, their impression was totally wrong of how they were to use the UN. They expected the United Nations to behave as a big power like the United States does when it goes out to help a country. Mm. That they use force to help a country, they provide arms, equipment, intelligence, as the population celebrated the arrival of UN troops in the Congo, the Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev was holding out prospects of help from the Red Army for the Lumumba government. Lumumba tried to use the Soviet embassy as a means of exerting pressure on the Americans. Without any official invitation, he travelled to the USA and asked for support against the Belgian intervention. But the jungle premier, as he was pejoratively called, wasn't even received by the president. I wish to convey to the entire American people a message of friendship from the Congolese people, who have great faith in you. We want you to understand us and help us. And we want you to know that when your technicians and teachers come to our country, you will find in the Congolese people friends and brothers. African leaders were new to us. A man such as Lumumba did not have the sophistication or the polish, if you will, of the normal German or French or Belgian, English, what have you, diplomat. Uh, he tended to say things very bluntly, and which upset, uh, I think, the Western nations. The international success of the Katanga secession led to the breakaway of another province. The diamond-producing region of South Kasai withdrew from the central government. Lumumba decided to stop the disintegration of the Congolese state without the help of the West. The major problem for any offensive was how to transport his troops to a front 1,000 kilometers away. Since we were not giving him the aircraft, he managed to get some aircraft from the Russians. This military operation was relatively successful, but Lumumba had signed his own death sentence a second time. Now it was the Americans who wanted rid of him. The United States deplores the unilateral action of the Soviet Union in supplying aircraft and other equipment for military purposes to the Congo, thereby aggravating an already serious situation which finds Africans killing other Africans. I had a little man at the airport, and if a white person got off a Soviet aircraft, he was considered Russian. Now, he could have been Czech, he could have been Bulgarian, because they had some Bulgarians and some Czechs there. But more likely, he was a... And the man would go, one, two, three, four, cross. One, two, three, four, cross. And at the end of the day, we would count these figures. So 
it was an approximation when I say a thousand. But they came in, and we were afraid that they would slowly take over the po the levers of power. Was it here on contact? Were you in contact with the Americans? Yes, my contact was Larry Devlin. We got on very well and we did some things together. But I think the Americans wanted to liquidate Lumumba. Oh yes, Colonel Malier was uh, in the defense section. With uh, He was a highly respected officer. Uh, he somehow understood Congolese probably better than 98% of his colleagues and certainly better than I did. One day it was agreed with our people that we would put listening devices in the Mumba's office. The Americans provided the equipment and the Belgians installed it. We intercepted all of Lumumba's telephone conversations. The big difficulty was that he often spoke in Tetela, and we had to have a translator. That was the biggest difficulty. Was this useful? We knew in general what he was saying and what he was doing. Through a series of press conferences, Lumumba tried in vain to win over world public opinion. He exposed the foreign intervention which was attempting to undermine the new independent Congo, but the press branded him as a threat to world interests and set about the assassination of his character. Reports from the German correspondent Peter Scholl-Latour were typical of the style used in the Western press. Is it his Mephistopheles beard, or those eyes rolling like billiard balls behind his spectacle lenses? There's something terrifying about this man. He has the head of an African Lenin. Lumumba's daughter, Juliana, was present at many of the press conferences. I was with my father all the time. Often I was the only person allowed to be with him when he was working on his speeches. So I'd sit down quietly and just be with Dad. In the Belgian press, he was shown as Satan, with horns and everything, the archetypal communist. And all this just because he said things which corresponded to the aspirations of the majority of the people, but which were absolutely not part of the mindset or the objectives of the colonial power at the time. He wanted the black people, the Congolese people, first and foremost, to be worthy of their own culture. He had faith in them. We want to be independent, he said, but on terms of equality and respect. I think that's why people always said he was intransigent. Are you a communist, Mr. Lumumba? It always makes me laugh when I'm asked that question. I'm not a communist at all. You know, I've often been presented as a communist, as anti-white, anti-Belgian, as someone destructive. Absolutely not. I'm simply a nationalist leader fighting for an ideal. I'm not a communist at all. I never will be. American agent Larry Devlin received $100,000 from the CIA along with instructions to make the elimination of Lumumba the priority goal of his covert action. Yes, I received a cable that uh, someone whom I would 
a senior officer that I would know by sight would arrive and give me specific instructions. Uh, and that, that was very surprising because why were they sending someone there to give me instructions when they could send them by cable? I had no idea what the instructions would be. In Belgian Secret Service telegrams, there was talk of a mysterious Operation Barracuda and of the imminent arrival of two children. I must say quite sincerely that I have no recollection of the code name Barracuda at all. And the two children, what was that? The two children? No. Yes, yes, I remember now. They sent two people, an aide and Major Lutz. They sent both of them. Yes, it must have been those two, to talk to me about the Lumumba affair, and they were in favor of eliminating him. I remember being totally surprised when he instructed me that they wanted to get rid of Lumumba. I, I, I'd never heard of, our, of the agency being involved in such a thing before. They wanted to send me a crocodile killer to get rid of Lumumba. That's what they came to propose. Substance to eliminate Lumumba was toothpaste that was poisoned, which would result in a illness very similar to polio or something like that, as I remember. I never opposed it. I always let them get on with things. But I let the Congolese do it. I think there were lots of people who preferred him out of the way for good. It's been denied that President Eisenhower issued such instructions. I have no idea whether he did or did not. At the time, I assumed that he had. And I, I, I have a feeling that Something must have been said that was either he ordered it or he was misunderstood. But certainly, I under I believed it at the time that it was a presidential order. The red flag came down when the Congolese army in Leopoldville overthrew the ultra-nationalist Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba and expelled Moscow's diplomatic representative from the country. With Soviet documents, fly sheets and propaganda brochures burned, communist intrigues against the United Nations in the Congo have for the time being been stopped. A 30-year-old colonel, Desiree Mobutu, has become the new strongman of this young republic with the support of the majority of the Congolese army. Mobutu had in fact been a trusted ally of Lumumba, who had appointed him head of the army only a few weeks earlier. He now declared he had deposed the prime minister. The officer who led the putsch was in fact the West's secret weapon against Lumumba. One of his most influential advisors was the Belgian counter-espionage officer, Colonel Malière. Mobutu was pro-Western, that's for sure. But apart from that, he was also manipulated by the Americans. He was interested in dealing with the United States and having American support. And I was the, the person with whom he worked. Mobutu's putsch was the prelude to a dictatorship lasting more than 30 years from which the country has never recovered. 
But Mobutu didn't do it on his own. He was helped. They came to take this country's wealth. They came to get contracts with him so they could fill their pockets and to get bigger and bigger royalties. They supported him for more than 30 years. The Americans, the Belgians, the French, and the big international companies. They didn't come to develop the country. They came to make a profit. And they made huge profits. Mobutu's move against Lumumba was not only supported by Western secret services, but also by the United Nations. It was a million dollars, roughly, uh, which was UN money, which was used to pay the troops. Using troops paid by foreign powers, Mobutu put Lumumba under house arrest. UN forces also surrounded the residence of the deposed Prime Minister to protect him, but also to eliminate him politically. Lumumba broke the siege and tried to take his family on the 2,000-kilometer drive to Stanleyville, where a pro-Lumumba counter-government had been formed. But his very popularity was to become his undoing. We understood it was to be like a normal official trip, so we mobilized the population in the usual way. He made a speech in every village, even in those villages which didn't support him, he would make speeches. He was caught in a trap of his own making. He wanted to win people over and he was quite capable of doing so, but this dragged out the journey and they were able to catch up with him and put him in prison. Late in the evening of the 1st of December, 1960, Lumumba crossed the Sankuru River by boat and appeared to have reached safety. But the ferryboat bringing his family also brought his pursuers. At the last moment, Lumumba managed to escape by driving to a UN position. The UN troops from Ghana had always been on his side, but this time the door stayed shut. Any intervention on behalf of the fugitive had been explicitly forbidden by headquarters. We had only agreed to provide him protection in the house. If he wanted to go out, then he had to tell us he's going out, where he's going, how he's going. Then we would have to decide how we are going to protect him. Two days later, at Leopoldville Airport. Mobutu had told the international press to come to the airport. Photographers and camera crews from the West were to witness the abuse and humiliation of the great Lumumba. We took him to Taisville, where he was guarded by Bobozo. And then one day we said he was trying to escape, and that's when Nendaka took things in hand to get him sent somewhere else. 
Victor Nandaka had once been a close friend of Lumumba's, his representative at the head of the party. Now he became Mobutu's security chief, responsible for capturing his former party comrades. On the 13th of January, there was what you would call a mutiny at the military camp. The army was divided. There were pro-Lumumba and anti-Lumumba factions. General Barboza said to Mobutu, I can't guarantee his security anymore, you'll have to take him off my hands. Put him wherever you like, but he must leave this camp because I can no longer vouch for the troops stationed in Thizville. We alerted everyone we could and said, be careful, he's quite capable of coming back to Leopoldville with the tanks from Tisville because he was capable of stirring up the troops and getting them behind him. Everyone was given their assignment. Mine was to go to Tysville, get the prisoners, and from there, take them to Moanda. It was only when we were in the plane that Lumumba realized what was really going on. Two of Lumumba's close political allies were also on board. Ministers Mopolo and Okito, who were also to share his fate. I wasn't interested. I washed my hands of it, and that was that. The destination of this carefully planned trip was Katanga, where Lumumba's deadly enemy was waiting for him. I was told to ask Chombe if he would take delivery of the parcel. Malia used the Belgian Secret Service's radio connections for his secret message. But who did he speak to? Commander Fadict, he was the one who answered. The first message, which I received at the end of the morning, was a message which had clearly come from Colonel Malière, saying, request agreement from the Jew to receive Satan. Yes, those were code words. We didn't speak openly. The Jew in my coded language was Chombe. And Satan for Lumumba. And let me point out that these code words were chosen by Colonel Malière and not by myself. For us, Lumumba was Satan. And he did look satanical. You just have to look at those eyes. And Chombe was the Jew. Why? Mr. Cash Register. Even the government in Brussels sent a telegram requesting that Chombi take charge of the prisoners. So the aircraft landed at Katanga's airport. We were there when Lumumba and the two others got off the plane. And it wasn't a pleasant sight. They put the three of them in a jeep, and that was when I realized it was Lumumba, who I had already seen before independence. They had shaved his beard off. He was tied up and all that. There were three of them. They struck me, Lumumba anyway, as very dignified, or shall we say, fatalistic. It's difficult to describe. They were being propped up, but they seemed very tired. The airfield was occupied by Swedish UN troops. They were there and saw the whole business. The Swedish unit was in the control tower. 
One of them, Sergeant Kelgren, made a very brief report describing the arrival of the prisoners. Yes, we did have a report on his arrival and immediately report instructions were given that we, you must watch him, you must insist that uh, he, you know, bodily harm is done. The prisoners were taken to an empty private house belonging to a Belgian settler not far from the airport. It was here at the Villa Brouet that they were guarded by military police under Belgian command. There were many witnesses to the events which followed. I saw several members of the Katanga government, including the Interior Minister, Mr. Monongo, who looked Lumumba over from head to foot and back again, and then spat on the ground. When I saw that, I said to myself, Lumumba has got his death sentence. After the visit from the Interior Minister, Monongo, we were ordered to shoot at the UN troops if they came. And if we couldn't prevent them getting in, we were to kill Lumumba. Did you feel any pity for him? Why should I? I have no pity for him. He insulted our king. Didn't it upset you a bit? Upset? A man's death doesn't leave you indifferent, but upset? No. I said to Chombe, his fate is sealed. Lumumba's fate is sealed. It's as sealed as if he was already dead. I'm sure of that. And in that case, they may as well execute him at Bakwanga as at Elizabethville. But there he was in the hands of the blacks. They were in the hands of the black government. So the discussion was not about whether to save Lumumba. The only discussion was about where to kill him. Yes. To put it in plain words, that was the issue. They wanted to kill them all. They said, if we don't kill him, we'll have more trouble. It was Munongo and Kibwe, the hardliners in the Katanga government, whose point of view won the day. And their line was Lumumba's arrival in Katanga means he must be put to death. The government met and decided Lumumba would be killed. They had a lot to drink during that cabinet meeting, and they had a lot more to drink afterwards. They took them to the presidency, to Chombe's residence. It was already evening, about 8 o'clock, 8.30, and from the presidency they went to the place where they were executed. And this is where the execution took place. They stood the condemned man up against that tree. Why didn't the Belgian officers refuse to take part? Now, oh, that's a good question. The Belgian officers were on detachment to Katanga. They carried out the orders they received from the authorities they had been seconded to. We dug a hole and we put them in front of it. We shot them and they fell into the hole. 
This is the tree they were stood up against. And here are the famous bullet holes. Here you can see them a bit better. The bullets, of course, went right through their bodies before lodging themselves in this tree. For me, the business with Lumumba started the morning after the execution. The man in charge, the Belgian, called me into his office and said, okay, are you going to take care of this? And I said, all right, but what do I have to do? The Katangans denied he was dead. They denied everything. It was absolutely crazy. We cut the bodies up into pieces. They were buried twice. We cut them up into pieces. We burned them. And we also had huge quantities of acid. Like you have in car batteries. And most of each body was dissolved. And then the rest, we burned them. But we had to do all this without the black scene. In the middle of the forest. That was a problem too. There were two of us, just the two. And we had to do all that on our own. Get the three bodies out of the ground. Cut them into pieces and destroy them. And nobody was to know about it. And nobody did. Nobody knew what happened. Uh, there were all kinds of stories about Lumumba's death. He was supposed to have escaped, stolen a car, been killed by some villagers who recognized him. But nobody believed any of that for a second. Even the Belgian Minister for Africa, one of those pulling the strings behind the scenes, contributed to the cover-up with false telegrams. I went there the next day. As soon as I arrived at the airport, I was told he was dead. I wonder how you reacted to this news. What was your reaction? Oh, I said, good riddance. What else would you expect me to say? For you, it was the kind of solution of all problems? Yes. He was happy. Happy, not, not perhaps the word. You're busy. <laughs> Here's one problem gone. Now what's the next problem? Three weeks later, the story was Lumumba and his accomplices massacred by villagers. Just one of countless lies. The whole truth only came to light ten years later. None of the murderers or the men behind them has ever been indicted. Lumumba wrote a last letter from prison. I often remember a sentence from that letter which said, to my children whom I'm leaving. To my children who I'll never see again, I'd like to say Congo has a magnificent future. Tell them the future of Congo will be magnificent and that he expects them, as he expects of every Congolese, to do their sacred duty. There are even people who believe he will return. 
Now he'll have to come back with two front teeth missing. You're Europeans. I think this image, and I'm not Jewish, I'm black, recalls the Holocaust. Their bodies were burned. Their body fat was used as fertilizer. Their gold teeth were taken as war booty. And that's called a crime against humanity. It's as simple as that. Welcome back, and that uh, was uh, the story of the brutal and conspiratorial assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba, the overthrow of his government in 1960, and of course, uh, the execution in January of 1961. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, the remains of Patrice Lumumba, uh, a tooth uh, which had been held as a souvenir by the Belgian authorities uh, since 1961, was returned uh, just several days ago uh, for a honorable burial in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our Tribute to uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal here on the uh, 40th anniversary of his conviction in 1982 in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We'll be back.
the music of uh, Candy Staten and Inside My Love, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, today, of course, represents the 40th anniversary of the conviction of uh, African-American activist, uh, organizer, and journalist, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was convicted by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania on uh, July 3rd of 1982, and uh, the following year he was put on death row and remained there until um, 2001. Uh, there was a stay, and of course in 2011 uh, he was re from um, death row to life without parole. Uh, his struggle continues, and uh, today uh, there was the 40 Cities for Mumia commemorations, uh, there was a demonstration uh, here in uh, the city of Detroit downtown at Campus Marshes, which we covered. We want to listen to the voice of the voiceless Mumia Abu-Jamal in his discussions about France Fanon. France Fanon, revolutionary journalist. Those who have studied the global black revolution of the 20th century have had to read the masterwork of France Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, which was known as the handbook of the black revolution from Accra in Ghana to Oakland in California. This work, as much a psychological study as a diagnosis of the nature of French colonialism in Algeria, gave militants tremendous insights into the nature of imperialism and how resistance exploded against it. Former Black Panther leader Kathleen Neal Cleaver has written that Fanon's influence on black revolutionaries in the U.S. was profound. But before he published The Wretched of the Earth, he wrote a remarkable series of articles anonymously for the Algerian revolutionary journal El Mujahid from September 1957 to January 1960. El Mujahid's attacks on the French political and military colonial officials is unusually sharp and focused reflecting Fanon's unique psychological and ideological insights into the Algerian and African struggles against imperialism. Al-Mujahid is an Arabic term meaning one who wages jihad or struggle. And here, one sees Fanon in a potent war of words against the foreign occupation of Algeria. But Fanon was far more than a word warrior. In his 1964 work, Toward the African Revolution, we find Fanon, the critic, the political analyst, the Africanist, the internationalist, the Marxist, and the anti-imperialist. In his El Mujahid articles, Fanon anonymously gives voice to the FLN, French Front Liberation Nationale, English National Liberation Front, and ridicules French efforts to tie the FLN to rapes, killings, and massacres, condemns Arab and African collaborators, and dissects how French forces use torture to intimidate the Algerian resistance. Fanon writes, Torture in Algeria is not an accident or an error or a fault. Colonialism cannot be understood without the possibility of torturing, of violating, or of massacring. Fanon was a revolutionary journalist, or perhaps more clearly, a revolutionary who also worked as a journalist. 
His heart was with all anti-imperialist, revolutionary, and national liberation movements. His heart was with rebel friends like Nkrumah of Ghana and Lumumba of Congo. His heart was with what he called the wretched of the earth, the world's dispossessed. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And that was a uh, commentary by Mumia Abu-Jamal on the Pan-Africanist uh, theoretician, uh, author of The Wretched of the Earth, Toward the African Revolution, uh, Black Skins, White Mask, uh, France, Dr. France Fanon, uh, who was born in Martinique and served in the French military during World War II and later uh, served in the French overseas mission in Algeria and, of course, witnessing the colonial system switch sides and joined uh, the National Liberation Front of Algeria, which won its national independence in 1962. And uh, here's another uh, audio file featuring Mumia Abu-Jamal in an interview with Albert Woodfox of the Angola Three, and this was uh, from April of 2021, just last year. Let's listen in. You brothers of the Angola Three, did an ungodly bit in the hole. How did the state justify locking you cats, I mean, up for so long? Well, given the unchecked and unchallenged power of the prison system in Louisiana, their justification was the fact that myself, Harmon, and Robert were fighting for humanity, the fact that we were fighting for the maintaining our dignity, pride, self-respect, and a self, uh, our self-worth, uh, they felt was a threat to what they considered to be the orderly function of the prison. That was the justification. The infamous Warden Burrow came, even made a statement once in a deposition that I was the most dangerous man in America. And since I've been out, I would like to think that my activities have proven him to be right. How did y'all endure 40 years in the hole? <laughs> That's the most difficult question to ask. I guess having a political consciousness, you know, that was inspired by, by being members of the Black Panther Party. You know, they say knowledge is power. So we had a, a sense of uh, what solitary confinement is it was designed for. And so over the decades, you know, it was just strength, determination, values, uh, principles. And we say that, and we look to a society for inspiration. Uh, the men and women, in some cases, children, fighting in society to be heard, fighting to change conditions and stuff, rather than turn inward and allow the prison culture to set examples about how we should live our lives. What gave y'all hope? The love, the, you know, I, we, I had wonderful family, wonderful comrades who made up the International Coalition of Free to Angola Tree, a wonderful legal team. But more than anything, what gave me hope was the guys I lived around, people in society, the social struggle that was being waged, sacrifices that was being made, uh, the indomitable spirit that refused to be broken. You know, those are some of the things that inspired me. 
you know. One thing in particular was the, the development of Black Lives Matter movement, you know, which I think is a tremendous movement. And it was so proud to uh, see all the young uh, men and women involved uh, in that movement uh, come forth. As a matter of fact, before the pandemic, when Robert and I or traveling together and speaking, we always uh, ask the host to arrange as possible so that we can meet with some of the young leaders in, in the movement. So those are the things that uh, gave me hope. It's, you know, a love, love of humanity, the indomitable spirit of the people, and the continuous struggle that was going on in society. Well, me and my brother, given the preponderance of evidence, exonerating you and lack of evidence against you. How did it feel to still be in prison? Brother Albert, and in the spirit of all the Angola Three, I salute you. You know, I think of early days, even before trial began. It was a pretrial hearing. I'd read a law book showing cases from the Supreme Court, in the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's based on the Constitution, right? Well, I went to the law library, read those actual cases, and then drew up motions. I made a motion in court. The court promptly denied this motion. I couldn't believe it. But it made me understand that the court, the court that most people meet when they first go into court, wasn't bound by a constitution or Supreme Court rulings. They do whatever they want to do because it really ain't about the law. It's about power. That same judge, Judge Sabo, would later say, and I'm saying in open court, 15 years later, in my case, justice is just an emotional feeling. To quote Malcolm X, don't be shocked when I say I was in prison. Long as you south of the Canadian border, you're still in prison. So all power to the people. My brother, what is your most painful personal loss? My mother and our daughter, Edith and Samir. I had dreams of walking with both of them in freedom. And, of course, other family members, brothers, sister. Uh, cousins, brothers-in-law, Basile, Lydia, Jimmy. They live in our memory and in our hearts. Again, my brother, what is your number one priority when freedom finally comes? The same as it's always been. To serve the people. To work on their behalf. To work for a world where true black liberation is a reality, not just words. As the Rastas say, freedom is a must. Thank you, Brother Woodfox. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. And that was a uh, classic uh, interview uh, by Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, with uh, Albert Woodfox. Uh, who had been a longtime uh, prisoner, political prisoner in the state of Louisiana, known as the Angola Three. 
And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And my name is Abayomi Azikawe. If you'd like to have um, access to this program for today, Sunday, July 3rd, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely uh, copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. You can also copy and paste the links onto blogs and websites, as well as sharing the links through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, featuring uh, more information on uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal here on the 40th anniversary of his uh, conviction. And, of course, as we mentioned earlier, uh, in 40 cities uh, around the country and the world, there have been demonstrations today. And there was one in downtown Detroit where we're broadcasting from. We'll be right back. If they try love, 
Uh, the voice of uh, Irma Thomas, uh, the, of course, uh, New Orleans resident, uh, classic uh, Southern soul singer, Irma Thomas. And if you really knew what love is, and we do know what love is here at the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And we're going to continue our expose into the case of African-American activist, organizer, and journalist, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, where in the United States today represents the 40th anniversary of his conviction uh, for killing a white police officer in Philadelphia, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, there was no real evidence that he was guilty of that crime, but due to his background in the Black Panther Party as a supporter of the MOVE organization in Philadelphia, as an outspoken critic of uh, the police and their uh, policies of brutality in the city of Philadelphia, uh, he was uh, not only uh, convicted of a crime he did not commit, but also sentenced to life in prison. He spent uh, the period uh, between 1983 and 2001 uh, facing uh, the death penalty, uh, some 18 years. And then, of course, with the stay, which was challenged uh, in the appeals courts in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania until in 2011 uh, when uh, his he was resentenced uh, to life in prison without parole. But this, of course, is unjust as far as his supporters are concerned. Uh, Mumia has faced uh, numerous health challenges, uh, particularly over the last uh, eight years. And uh, we're going to go back uh, to look at some of the history of this case. People really don't understand what the climate was in Philadelphia in the years before Mumia was arrested. Because if they did, they would look at his arrest and his trial in a different fashion. In 1982, Philadelphia journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal was convicted of first-degree murder in the killing of police officer Daniel Faulkner. On the July 4th weekend, he was sentenced to death. In 2001, federal court judge William Yon overturned Abu-Jamal's death sentence as illegally imposed and unconstitutional. Yet Abu-Jamal remained on death row for more than 10 years while the Philadelphia district attorney continued to pursue his execution. In 2011, the DA's office conceded defeat, and after 30 years on death row, Abu-Jamal was transferred from solitary confinement and joined the general prison population, where he continues his appeals. Mumia Abu-Jamal has said numerous times, My only crime that night is that I survived. In fact, the effort to legally execute Abu-Jamal has only recently ended, but the first attempt to kill him may have been made on that fateful night of December 9, 1981. Abu-Jamal was also critically wounded, shot through the chest, and found near the prone body of Daniel Faulkner. And the evidence that convicted him for the murder? Well, it doesn't exist. It's been well established over the years that Abu-Jamal's trial was patently unjust. For instance, the Philadelphia DA trained prosecutors to exclude blacks from juries. In Abu Jamal's case, 11 out of the 15 preemptory strikes were made to bar blacks from his jury. What this short film will document is how countless due process violations began just moments after the shooting of Daniel Faulkner and Mumia Abu Jamal, when members of the Philadelphia Police Department began to manufacture Abu Jamal's guilt and perhaps more importantly, conceal his innocence. 
In the culture wars that have punted Mumia the effigy back and forth across ideological fields of politics, race, and class, the attempt has been made to diminish the relevance of Abu Jamal as a journalist in 1981. But this man, who was elected president of the Philadelphia chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists, was already well-known throughout the city as a fiercely independent up-and-coming journalist. In fact, by the age of 15, the FBI was tracking the young writer for the Black Panther Party through their draconian and illegal program known as COINTELPRO. Not for violent behavior, but because of his, quote, inclination to appear and speak at public gatherings. Also in 1981, he was well known to the Philadelphia Police Department as an outspoken journalist who reported on police corruption and brutality, in particular with regard to the Philly PD's hostile relationship with the controversial MOVE organization, culminating in a year-long police siege of the MOVE house that ended in 1978 with the shooting death of police officer James Ramp. Nine members of MOVE were charged with the murder and during his coverage of the trial, Abu Jamal strongly criticized the actions of the police and the prosecution, including the implication that the officer was most likely killed by police crossfire. The MOVE trial concluded just a year and a half before Abu Jamal and Faulkner were found shot on that fateful night. And it was only four months from the federal trial of MOVE leader John Africa, whose acquittal on gun charges left the police and DA's office infuriated. When they saw who they had, this was number one. I mean, wow, you know, look what we done ran into. We got a panther. And we're going to kill this panther. We're going to kill this nigga here, right here. In the early morning hours of December 9, 1981, police officer Daniel Faulkner pulls over a rundown blue Volkswagen Beetle in the bustling red light district of Philadelphia. At 3.51 a.m., Faulkner reports over his radio that he has stopped the car at 13th and Locust Street. At the same time, Mumia Abu-Jamal is parked in his cab just around the corner. He fills out his log, anticipating a new fare just as the clubs are closing. He's moonlighting as a cab driver after his uncompromising approach to reporting began to cost him work as a journalist. He had recently started carrying a registered 38 Charter Arms revolver during his late-night cab runs after having recently been robbed at gunpoint. From the DA's office to Abu Jamal's most ardent defenders, all agree that Abu Jamal's brother Billy Cook, who ran a street vendor stall nearby, exited his Volkswagen and had an exchange with Faulkner. But what happened next has been the subject of heated debate ever since. What is certain is that the version put forth by the prosecution in conjunction with the Philadelphia Police Department at Abu Jamal's 1982 trial is a complete fabrication, and a willful fabrication at that. After being denied his constitutional right to defend himself at his original trial, and after heeding legal advice not to testify at his appeals hearing in 1995, Abu Jamal released a declaration in 2001 in which he details the events of that night. I did not shoot police officer Daniel Faulkner. I had nothing to do with the killing of officer Faulkner. I am innocent. I was filling out my log when I heard some shouting. I glanced in my rearview mirror and saw a flashing dome light of a police cruiser. This wasn't unusual. I continued to fill out my trip sheet when I heard what sounded like gunshots. I looked again into my rearview mirror and saw people running up and down Locust. I recognized my brother standing in the street 
staggering and dizzy. I immediately exited the cab and ran to his screen. As I came across the street, I saw a uniformed cop turn toward me, gun in hand. Saw a flash and went down to my knees. Now the prosecution claimed that Abu Jamal's brother, Billy Cook, was alone in the Volkswagen. Officers James Forbes and Robert Shoemaker testified at the 82 trial that they were the first officers to arrive on the scene and that they immediately found Abu Jamal's gun as well as Faulkner's gun. Inspector Alfonso Giordano would arrive three minutes later and take control of the scene as the ranking officer. At pre-trial hearings, Giordano testified that Abu Jamal confessed to the murder when Giordano asked him where his gun was and Abu Jamal replied, I dropped it beside the car after I shot him. Cab driver Robert Chobert testified he was parked just behind Faulkner's squad car, witnessed the shooting, and identified Abu Jamal as the shooter. Prostitute Cynthia White also testified that she saw the shooting. Her testimony matched that of Robert Chobert's. All of these claims, most of which formed the foundation of the prosecution's case, were manufactured. Let's first look at the claim that Billy Cook was alone in the Volkswagen. After Faulkner radioed that he stopped a car, he followed with, quote, on second thought, send me a wagon. This request for backup clearly indicates that there was more than one person in the car. Then in 1995, Captain Edward D'Amato admitted that a driver's license permit for a man named Arnold Howard, a business partner of Cook's, was found on Faulkner. Again, strong evidence that there was more than one person in Billy Cook's Volkswagen. In 1982, the police and prosecution illegally kept this evidence from Abu Jamal and his defense attorney. Why were they suppressing this evidence of other potential suspects in the shooting of Daniel Faulkner? Now, what about the immediate recovery of the weapons? Radio transmissions from the scene to Central Command over the next 15 minutes contradict the testimony of officers Forbes and Shoemaker. No officer reports immediately finding any weapons. In fact, Nearly five minutes later, officers on the scene report that Faulkner's gun is missing. It was 14 minutes before it was reported that the suspect's gun was recovered and that they had the doer in custody. There is no report that Abu Jamal confessed. There is no report that a witness or witnesses identified anyone as the shooter. Prior to the arrival of the police mobile forensics unit, Freelance photographer Pedro Polakoff arrives, moving freely through the crime scene and snapping off more than two dozen photos. These photos show, contrary to police regulations, that the area was not properly secured to preserve evidence. The photographs also show Officer Forbes walking around carrying both guns in his bare hand. This lack of regard for forensic evidence looks more like willful intent to manipulate a crime scene when you consider the following. Police reported no fingerprints on the guns. No tests were done on Abu Jamal's hands for gunpowder residue. Contrary to police regulations, Officer Forbes failed to immediately turn over the weapons to the mobile crime unit. In fact, the weapons were not turned over for two hours. Later, the police falsely described the bullet from Faulkner's head wound as too damaged and deteriorated to do a comparison ballistics test with a bullet fired from Abu Jamal's gun but photographs of the bullet clearly show the identifying characteristics, its twists, the number of lands and grooves, and the relative widths. 
Instead, the prosecution claimed that the bullet was, quote, consistent with one fired from Abu Jamal's Charter Arms 38 revolver. Although police ballistics expert Anthony Paul admitted this is true of, quote, multiple millions of guns. During appeals, when Abu Jamal and his legal team demanded independent testing to determine if the bullet was fired from Abu Jamal's gun, their request was denied, first by Judge Albert Sabo, and then later by federal court judge William Yon. What all of this clearly illustrates is that, in fact, there is no physical evidence that Abu Jamal shot Faulkner, or that his gun was the murder weapon. But what about eyewitness testimony? What about Cynthia White? the prostitute whose testimony was the linchpin to the prosecution's case. Several times after the shooting, she was arrested only to be let go after she signed updated witness statements. Each time, the story changed to make a stronger case against Abu Jamal. By the time the case went to trial, her statement fit perfectly into the prosecution's case. Witnesses Pamela Jenkins and Yvette Williams swore that White said she was scared for her life under police threats if she didn't testify as they wanted. Witness Veronica Jones blurted out on the witness stand at the 1982 trial that the police told her Cynthia White was given a deal to say that Abu Jamal was the shooter. Jones testified that the police threatened her to ID Abu Jamal as well. What's more, all the civilian witnesses, both for the prosecution and the defense, testified that they didn't see Cynthia White on the scene, or only later after the police arrived. And what about eyewitness Robert Chobert? His testimony was arranged most likely by Inspector Alfonso Giordano. The official police photos, as well as Polakoff's photos, show Chobert's cab was not parked behind Faulkner's squad car as claimed by Chobert and the prosecution. In fact, Chobert was driving illegally that night on a suspended license while on probation after being paid to throw a firebomb into a grade school. During appeals, Chobert admitted that in exchange for his testimony, the prosecution said they would assist with his probation. What's more, Chobert later admitted that he was parked elsewhere and that his testimony was false. The prosecution offered two more eyewitnesses, Michael Scanlon and Albert Madrilton. Both men said that they did not see the shooting. Magilton only saw a man run across Locust Street. Scanlon explicitly described the man he saw as having an Afro hairstyle and not dreadlocks. There are yet more troubling questions about what happened that night, questions that continually underscore the innocence of Abu Jamal as well as the effort to frame him. Six witnesses, including Robert Chobert, made statements that one or more people fled the scene. There is no evidence that investigators ever pursued this person or persons. And, according to these witnesses, they were subjected to police threats, coercion, or offered favors by the prosecution. William Singletary, a local businessman, said he was standing on a nearby street corner and witnessed the shootings. Immediately after, he tried to give his statement to police that Abu Jamal arrived after Faulkner was already shot. Homicide detectives interrogated and threatened Singletary with bodily harm as well as the trashing of his business if he testified in favor of Abu Jamal. And then Abu Jamal's brother, Billy Cook, later swore that his business partner, Ken Freeman, was in the car with him and participated in the shooting of Faulkner. Cook said police threatened him with his life and that he too would be charged with Faulkner's murder if he testified for his brother at trial. 
Also factor in that eight people, including two officers and two prosecution witnesses, identified the shooter or persons near Faulkner as wearing a green army jacket. But Billy Cook was wearing a blue Nehru-style jacket, and Abu Jamal was wearing a blue quilted ski jacket with wide red zigzag stripes. In 1999, a career criminal and self-described hitman Arnold Beverly confessed he shot Faulkner in the head and that Abu Jamal arrived after Faulkner was shot and had nothing to do with the shooting. Without providing any reason, except that the confession was too late, the Pennsylvania and federal courts have refused to even admit this confession into evidence. Now, while the prosecution supposedly had four witnesses to the shooting, None of their witnesses ever said they saw Abu Jamal get shot. The prosecution argued that as Abu Jamal came across Locust Street, he shot Faulkner in the back and as Faulkner turned and was falling down, he pulled his gun and shot Abu Jamal. An upward shot through his chest. While the prosecution tried to explain the clear downward trajectory of the bullet as a ricochet off his ribcage, medical evidence is clear. The bullet moved cleanly into Abu Jamal's chest, through his lung and lodged near his liver in an uninterrupted downward line. The prosecution's rendition of how Abu Jamal was shot is physically impossible. But perhaps the most striking fabrication of the case presented to jurors in 1982, a falsehood that formed the emotional foundation of the prosecution's case and its success in securing a death sentence, is the testimony of Cynthia White and Robert Schobert that Abu Jamal shot Faulkner, execution style, standing directly over him and unloading four rounds, somehow three missed and only one strikes Faulkner in the face. Now, what this claim actually shows is the clear intent by members of the Philadelphia Police Department and the District Attorney's Office to frame Mumia Abu Jamal for a crime he did not commit. Bullets from a 38 caliber weapon hitting the sidewalk would, without any doubt, leave divots as they tore into the concrete. As shown by this photo analyzed by Robert Nelson, an expert in photo enhancement and analysis at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the concrete was, as Nelson determined, quote, completely smooth. This photograph proves that White and Chobert could not have seen, as they claimed at trial, anyone stand over Faulkner and fire. This clearly supports, along with the other evidence of police intimidation, that their testimony was arranged to support a patently false, physically impossible rendition of the crime. This execution-style account invented by the police and prosecution was a key part of their concerted effort not only to get a guilty verdict, but the death penalty. Mumia Abu-Jamal's arrest for this murder was shocking to all who knew him or knew his work. The headline of the Philadelphia Inquirer the next day was unusually sympathetic, stating, The suspect, Jamal, an eloquent activist not afraid to raise his voice. Philadelphia Inquirer, December 10, 1981. Arrested and charged with murdering a police officer, Abu-Jamal, from the very outset, acted on his innocence, twice requesting a police lineup a direct challenge to prosecution witnesses to identify him. He knew the real shooter, or shooters, must have fled the scene. But the court denied his requests for a lineup, just as they would deny his request for funds that would pay for defense investigations 
as well as expert ballistics witnesses. What's been presented here is evidence of a concentrated effort to frame a man who had been the object of hatred among members of the Philadelphia Police Department for more than a decade. Though it was denied by police, the admitting doctor at Jefferson Hospital, where both Abu Jamal and Faulkner were admitted, noted injuries indicating that Abu Jamal took a serious beating in addition to his critical gunshot wound. Supported by civilian witness statements, Abu Jamal himself recounts being punched, kicked, and rammed headfirst into a pole by officers arriving on the scene. After being thrown into a police van, Inspector Alfonso Giordano assaults Abu Jamal in the head with a police radio while hurling racial slurs. A former commander of the Philadelphia Police Department's stakeout cops, Giordano was in charge of the raids on the offices of the Philadelphia chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s when Abu Jamal was a prominent member. Giordano was also in charge of the year-long police siege of MOVE in 1978, which typified racial tensions in the city at the time and resulted in the subsequent trial of the MOVE 9, when Giordano arrived on the crime scene to find the wounded journalist Abu Jamal. He knew exactly who he was and from that moment on, all police attention was directed to producing evidence of Abu Jamal's guilt and nothing else. As the prosecution built their case, Giordano was the prime police witness during pretrial hearings and his account of Abu Jamal's confession was a cornerstone. But without explanation, he was pulled from the case and did not even testify at trial. Unknown to Abu Jamal and his defense, Giordano, as well as the commander and deputy commander of the Center City area, along with the head of the Homicide Division, in fact, the entire chain of command in Abu Jamal's prosecution, were all under FBI investigation for corruption at the time of Faulkner's murder. Giordano was removed from his post as a command inspector and relegated to desk duty after the FBI and the Justice Department apparently informed Philadelphia District Attorney Ed Randell that Giordano was under investigation for corruption and his testimony at Abu Jamal's trial would undermine their case. Giordano resigned from the police force at full retirement pay the first working day after Abu Jamal's conviction. His previously publicized report that Abu Jamal confessed to shooting Faulkner was not even introduced at trial. But the prosecution would still get their confession. The DA's office convened a roundtable meeting and asked police witnesses did anybody hear his statement? Officers Gary Bell and Gary Wachshall, along with Jefferson Hospital security guard Priscilla Durham, suddenly report a second confession by Abu Jamal. At this point, this dramatic second confession is being remembered and reported more than two months after the night of the crime. Officer Wachshall, assigned to Abu Jamal from the crime scene through his admittance to the hospital, along with Officer Bell and security guard Durham, reportedly heard Abu Jamal say, I shot the motherfucker and I hope he dies. But less than two hours after supposedly hearing this confession, Wachshall completed his report to homicide detectives with the statement that during his entire time guarding Abu Jamal, quote, the Negro male made no comments. When Wachshall was questioned during appeals why it took more than two months to report this supposed confession, he explained that he was too distressed to remember and then later claimed, quote, I only then realized it might have some meaning. Security guard Priscilla Durham, who had aspirations to become a police officer herself, later admitted to her stepbrother 
that she lied about hearing this confession. And what about Dr. Anthony Coletta, who was with Abu Jamal from the time he arrived in the emergency room until he went into surgery and stated that he did not hear nor hear of any confession made by Abu Jamal in the hospital. When Abu Jamal attempted to call Waksho to the stand during the 82 trial to counter the report of his confession, he was told by the prosecution that the officer was on vacation and was denied even a phone call by Judge Sabo to see if the officer could be reached. When Abu Jamal protested this blatantly unreasonable and unjust denial, Sabo's response was, your attorney and you goofed. A comment of such cruelty is no surprise given the obvious bias and racism of Judge Sabo who promised to a fellow judge in the presence of court reporter Terry Maurer Carter that, quote, I'm going to help them fry the nigger. But while Sabo was infamous for his hostile behavior with defendants and was actually nicknamed the prosecutor in robes, it was a corrupt Philadelphia police force empowered by the DA that clearly manufactured Abu Jamal's guilt and suppressed evidence of his innocence beginning in those early morning hours of December 9th 1981. Welcome back, and uh, that was a uh, detailed account of uh, manufacturing evidence against Mumia Abu-Jamal, and as we said earlier, today uh, we have uh, participated in the 40 cities for Mumia, and uh, of course there was an action in uh, downtown Detroit today, as well as uh, 40 other cities across the U.S. and the world. And uh, if you want to find out more about the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, just listen to uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast and read the Pan-African Newswire. And uh, we're going to be closing out our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to our program, just contact the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with Book a Little from the album entitled Out Front. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.